Gospel, the 24th chapter. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body... They came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour, and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, would you please uh, join with me uh, in prayer as uh, we prepare to kind of study this word even more closely. Father, I thank you again that you are here with each of us. You are not bound by location. And you are not even bound by the circumstances. You are the one who binds all circumstances. You are the one who has placed us here in this moment, in this time. And we pray now, um, as you are a God who speaks, that you would speak to us. That you would help me uh, to be truthful and faithful. That you would help us to hear and be changed, that in all of this, Lord, you would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, so it occurred to me as I was thinking about this Sunday, which of course is not the Easter that any of us planned, that there's a real sense that actually this Sunday is closer to the first Easter Sunday than anything else we've ever experienced or ever will experience, which might seem like a strange thing to say, uh, because when we think of Easter Sunday, we think of celebration, we think of, of exuberant joy, and with good reason. Scripture even speaks in those terms. In Isaiah, God promises that his servant will, will take away mourning and weeping and bring dancing and, and joy. And, and when Jesus comes into this world, he says, I have come that they might have life. And not just that they might have life, but they might have it abundantly. And Peter, decades later, reflecting on what Christ has done, speaks to the church of how now they have inexpressibly great joy. And that all is rooted in the reality that we're celebrating this morning of Easter, which is why when we think of Easter, we think of all sorts of different symbols of joy, whether it's fun, silly things like Easter egg hunts and dressing up in, in new and nice clothes or, or gathering together in our congregation and belting out Christ the Lord has risen today with tears in our eyes. Or even after, coming together with many people, friends and family over dinner to celebrate. These are the things that we associate with the joy of Easter. And yet none of those are happening this morning. And, and that's hard. This is hard. And yet, uh, as I said, it occurs to me that that actually is much closer to the way things felt the very first Easter morning. Um, Think about it. They, like us, were stuck in their homes. They were afraid for their lives after Jesus had been taken away. There was confusion. There was sadness. There were these reports of the women sharing that they have seen an empty tomb, but, but people didn't know what to do with it. There, there was a lot of despair as Easter morning began. And what we have in... Um, in the passage in all of Luke 24 is actually not an account of the resurrection. If you think about it, we don't actually have an account of the resurrection. We don't have any description of the moment when Jesus took his first breath and, and stood up and emerged from the tomb. There is something very private about that that seems to be only between the Son and the Father. We don't have that, but what we do have is an account of what happens immediately after. What we have is an account of the risen Jesus leading his people whom he loves from despair into joy. And, and that's, that's clearly what we have in our passage this morning. So the passage that Craig just re read so well, it, it takes place a few hours into the day. The women have already gone to the tomb, found it empty. They have seen an angel saying he's not here, he's risen as we read earlier, he, they've come back. The disciple, a couple of disciples went, they looked, they found the tomb empty. There's confusion, and yet what we have here with our story is a story of, of two men. And we don't know much about these two men. We know um, one of them is named Cleopas. We know that they are disciples of Jesus. And we know, and I think this is probably the most important detail, that they're walking away. They are leaving Jerusalem or seven miles away to Emmaus, 
They're leaving the group of disciples even after they have heard this story from the women. Rather than waiting to see, they have departed, which tells us that they don't buy it. They, they have given up. So our story, we see as they are taking this three-hour trek, these two men who are likely good friends are, are processing together. They're going over probably their experiences over the last few years of what they saw with Jesus, his miracles, the traumatizing events of the last few days, and, and even trying to make sense of these reports that they have heard. And, and wonderfully, gloriously, we see beginning to walk behind them the risen Jesus, very much alive, who is breathing and with a pulse. And at some point, he decides to move right next to them, and he starts talking to them. And, and we're told that they are kept from recognizing him. And it's not clear why that is, whether it's Jesus miraculously keeping their eyes shut, or I actually think this is more likely, whether it's because they are so locked in to this hopelessness that they are not even able to see Jesus when he is directly in front of them. But though they don't see Jesus, Jesus sees them and he knows them. And he's come after them. Like, it, like a shepherd who leaves the 98 sheep who are safe to bring the two who are wandering back home. To bring them into joy. Because that's what Jesus does. And so as they are walking, Jesus asks them a question. And he says to them, I couldn't help overhearing what you were talking about. What is it that you were speaking of? And it tells us that in that moment, uh, the, the two men are so overcome with grief at the idea of having to explain these events to another person that it says they just stopped in sadness. They're paralyzed in their grief. And I think probably coming from that place of pain, they actually are kind of rude to Jesus. And they say, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know what happened? Which is one of my favorite lines, actually, in this whole passage, because he is the only visitor to Jerusalem who actually knows what happened. But in this moment, his, his purpose is not to show that he is right. He just gently draws them out and, and says, what things? And so if you notice when we were looking at it, they, they kind of tell the story. And they have all of the details that are the correct details. They speak of the greatness of Jesus, of, of the hope they had that he was to be their savior, of, of his death, and even of the reports of the resurrection. And yet, even though they have those details, they, they tell the story wrongly, right? They, they don't tell a story of joy for them. The story is tragedy. And before I'm too critical of them, it, it occurs to me that that actually is not that different from how I find myself. And maybe that's the way that you find yourself at times. Let me just ask you to imagine something. Imagine that you are talking to a close friend of yours and he is asking how you're doing and you're asking how he's doing. And of course, you start talking about what's going on right now, about coronavirus and how things have changed. And, and maybe if you're able to get really honest, you, you start talking about the fears that you have and, and the griefs that you're experiencing. 
But let me ask you the same question I asked myself. Where, if we are telling our stories, where does the resurrection fit into it? Because if you think about it, we're, we are in a similar place to these two men in that we have heard those same reports. I mean, we have the eyewitness reports of the women who found the empty tomb and the disciples who found the empty tomb. And, and we have even more than that, right? We have the testimony of, of many disciples that has lasted, you know, like they, they, they held to this testimony for 40 years. I was um, reading a quote recently from Chuck Colson whom you might know, who was uh, um, the you know, in Watergate, um, and and when they are um, so so in Water, and here's what he says. Sorry, excuse me. Um, he says, uh, "I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because twelve men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead." Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? absolutely impossible. So we have that, right? We have, we have that testimony. And yet, what place does the resurrection have in, in your story? I'm not saying that if you were telling your friend, you told your story, that suddenly you say, and the resurrection took place part of the way through. But what I mean is, to what extent does its, its light, its joy color the story you are telling about your life right now? Is your story one that even though it has grief, has this underlying story of joy because of the resurrection? Or is the story you are telling like the story they are telling? Is the story a tragedy? So they are telling a tragedy because their souls are sick. I think sick, you could say even with sin. And Jesus, I've said before, he's a shepherd, but in many ways what we see here is Jesus is this great physician, this great doctor. And what we see moving forward is Jesus healing those who are sick, leading them from the sickness of this tragedy into resurrection joy. And, and here's the thing. I actually think that the reason we're being told this story is that if we listen well, Jesus can heal us through these very words. So, so what does Jesus do? Well, he is like the best of doctors who knows at times when they need to be blunt and, and tell it to them straight. And so what does he say? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Slow of heart. You should understand in that day, heart was not meant to signify just the emotions like we think of it. It was meant as kind of the center of a person, that, that part of you that's in the driver's seat, that is navigating your life. And, and what Jesus is saying, there is something very central to who you are that has been resisting what God has been telling you through the prophets. When I was uh, a kid, um, I, I struggled socially. Uh, you know, I was picked on, uh, didn't have a whole lot of friends, and and as I look back on it now, I realize that a lot of the reason for that was my own fault. That, um, 
that because of my insecurity, because I was younger than everyone else, I kind of acted out in ways that were unpleasant. And I actually think that uh, a number of like my parents and, and teachers tried to help me to see that. But I was really slow of heart to be able to hear them because I didn't want to, because it was threatening, because it was much easier for me to think that what really needed to happen was all stuff that was outside of me, that people just needed to be nice, that people just needed to like me, rather than accepting the harder truth that the problem actually was within and that it would be difficult and that it would demand something of me that I wasn't sure that I could do. I was, I was slow to listen. And, and that's, that's what Jesus is saying to them, that you are slow of heart to hear what God has said to you, that you are resisting. And what is it that he is saying that they are resisting? Well, we see it in the very next verse. He, he basically, he is saying, you did not listen to God when he said time after time that the kind of savior that you need to truly save you is a savior who suffers. Right? That's, that's what he says in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? You did not understand that the savior that you need is a savior who suffers. And, and then it tells us how he went beginning with Moses and all the prophets starting in Genesis and going to the very end of the Old Testament showing that this is exactly what God had said again and again throughout the Old Testament. And having studied Isaiah with you, I have little doubt that as he's going through book by book, he spends a lot of time in Isaiah and he speaks of those servant songs that we've been looking at. And he speaks maybe especially of Isaiah 53, of how, how the Savior needed to come amidst our muck. We are brought down by our guilt, our sin, in this dark well. And the only solution, Isaiah tells us, is for the one who saves us to go even lower and to, to lift us up out of it, to, to carry our burdens upon his shoulder, to carry our sin and our guilt upon himself by his wounds, we are healed. That's, that's the sermon, if you will, that Jesus is proclaiming to these two men. Did you not understand that the Christ had to suffer to save you? They didn't hear it. They were slow to hear it because it was threatening. And the reality is that hasn't actually changed. You know, somewhere between two-thirds and three-fourths of all Americans say they believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That is not as difficult as some things for people to believe. The part that actually, I think, that causes people to stumble and makes it hard for them to really buy what Christian gospel is proclaiming is not that, but the idea that they would need a suffering Savior. So uh, this week, um, there was posted uh, on uh, Twitter from um, an organization called the Atheist Republic, and um, they tweeted out a picture of Jesus dying on the cross, and overlaid upon the image were the words, is this the best idea that your powerful, omnipotent, and loving God could come up with to save humanity? Now, Few people would speak 
quite as rudely or bluntly as that, but I suggest that they're actually voicing a question that many people have. How is it that a suffering savior is what is needed? Because honestly, the story that we like to tell ourselves is that the problem that is in our lives lies mostly outside of us. What we need is for the world just to be a little bit more safe, for people to be a little more nice, for maybe our work to be a little more prosperous, for this world to be a bit more free of, of sickness. And maybe we'll acknowledge that there are some things that are probably problematic within us, but you know, if we just kind of set our minds to it, we can probably fix those as well. And what Jesus on the cross, what God, as he proclaims this truth that you need a suffering savior is telling you is simply no. No, that's not true. What what Jesus on the cross tells you and me is that our sin, our guilt is grave enough that the only just consequence for what you and I have done is death. Jesus dying on the cross tells us that our hearts are so twisted by our sin, that the only solution for them is a complete transformation. What Jesus dying on the cross tells us is that you and I are too weak to do anything about this, to fix the fact that we need to deserve to die, to fix the fact that we need our heart changed. The truth that you need a suffering savior when we really understand it is both humiliating and terrifying. It is threatening. And yet it is the truth that you and I absolutely need to hear if we want to enter into joy. Because unless we are able to understand and accept the reality of Good Friday, we can never truly embrace and celebrate the joy of Easter. Think about it. If If we don't understand what Good Friday is about, then what we have here is just a story that turned out okay. I mean, it was really sad that Jesus died, but hey, it's great. He's living again. That's good. But that's not where the joy is found. Where the joy is found is the reality that this is indeed the single most glorious idea that God came up with, that he chose in himself to take our place and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves that he suffered in our place, that he is transforming us, that he has not just come back alive, but he has conquered sin and death for us, and he is risen victorious. That is a glorious truth that only we can experience if we first take hold of the bitter truth of Good Friday. And, And that's what seems to be happening with the two men, with Cleopas and his friend. As Jesus is speaking these words, they're being healed. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but later on he said, they say, were not our hearts burning as he opened up the scriptures to us? And if you think about it, that's actually not a very comfortable image. I mean, we don't really want to have our hearts feel like they are on fire. That's, that's painful. And, and that's right. Good Friday. Good Friday is a Painful, the most painful day of the year when we're really recognizing what it says. And, and yet it is a fire that is not just painful, but that is purifying. It burns 
away the lies, to open people up for the truth that can give joy. But you'll notice that even after Jesus has done this, they still don't yet see, they don't recognize that they are speaking with Jesus. And and that's because the cure involves two more steps. Um, The first step actually involves giving them a choice. Um, You notice this, it says, uh, so they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. Now, he doesn't have another appointment. He is here for them, but what he is doing is he's giving them a chance to move from kind of just passively hearing to actively embracing this. He is posing them with a question. Now that I have told you this hard truth, will you continue to resist it or will you welcome it in? And actually, Scripture says that is that is the way Jesus works with, with all of us. Elsewhere, he says, behold, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone would hear my voice and open up the door and let me in, I will eat with him and he with me. And the idea is Jesus speaks. In fact, because I'm opening his word, he is in some ways speaking to us right now, and we have a choice. So often we can hear things and just kind of let them bounce off. We can allow it to move away. But Jesus says, I am knocking, and here is your choice. Will you bring this in and hear me? And we see the decision they make. They make the choice. It says, they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. They have heard, and they want to hear more. And so there is now one more step to their cure. Because it is not enough for them simply to understand, in theory, that Jesus died and rose again. They need to understand the reality that Jesus died and rose again for them. And so do you notice that there's this really strange, almost impolite moment when they come into the house? Who is the one who takes the role of the host? It's, it's not the two men. It's, it's Jesus. It says that when they came in, he is the one who blessed the bread. He is the one who broke the bread. He is the one who gave the bread to them. And it's at that very moment when their eyes are open and they realize that all of this time they have been talking with the risen Christ Jesus. Now why? Why Why is that the moment? Because what Jesus is doing here is the same thing he was doing when he was with 5,000 breaking bread and handing it to them. The same thing he was doing just a few days earlier when he broke bread and said, This is my body given to you. What he is doing here as he is giving them this bread is saying, I have come for you. I have come to feed you. I have come to give myself for you. Take. He is telling them that this is not just something that happened, but this is something that he has done for them. You know, one of the hardest parts for me about this time of separation is that we don't get to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And that is really the reason Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is not just simply an illustration. It's a personalization. It is Jesus putting in our hands 
the bread and the cup so that we could know that this is not just something that happened out there. This is something that Jesus has done for you. And, and what we can't do this morning with a sacrament, let me at least seek to do to some degree with words. Look, right now I am looking at a white dot. I'm seeing a camera. I don't know who is on the other side of this. Um, and I certainly don't know some of what your story is, some of the things that maybe are most private about the things that you are enduring, about the hardships that you're feeling even right now, how you're feeling in this moment. But what I want you to understand is that right now Jesus does know that. That right now Jesus sees you in this moment. And that Jesus stands holding out his hands to you saying, I love you. I give myself to you. I desire to feed you and nourish you that through what I have done, that you might have life. Until you understand that, that ridiculous, crazy, but absolutely true reality, you will not be able to experience the joy. And that is what the disciples experience. In the very moment they take the bread, they've received this gift, they understand in that moment Jesus disappears because his work has been done. And you can tell that by the transformation. Remember, they were walking slowly, telling a story of tragedy as they walked away. Now they are walking quickly back to Jerusalem and their story is a story of joy and victory. He has risen and we have seen him. So what is the story that we are telling right now, us? We are in a really hard time. There's no way around that. And there is more difficulty and grief before us. And yet what I hope we can see is that there is a bigger and greater reality that even dwarfs this enormous coronavirus epidemic, pandemic. And that is that the king of the universe has come into this world that we might have life and have it abundantly. The king of the universe has chosen to suffer so that he could do for us what we could not do for ourselves to rescue us. The king of the universe has conquered sin and death because he has risen that we might not taste eternal death, but that we might have eternal life. The king of the universe has come to give you inexpressible joy. And my prayer, my desire for each of you who are watching this, even as it's a desire for myself, is that we would take hold of that reality and be filled with resurrection joy. So right now, I would love to give us...